0: Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad that you can join me today. I've got a great show lined up for you. As always, I've been thinking about this show all day because I get to talk once again to my friend Jay Warner Wallace. He's coming on in the, and uh, he is, of course, a featured cold case homicide detective who's now retired, but he's a popular national speaker, best selling author. And he is also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology, which is Biola and Southern Evangelical Seminary, I could keep reading his credits, but I don't want to eat up the whole hour, so let's just bring him on. Hey, Jim.
2: Hey, how are you? I'm glad you're not reading all that junk. No, no, <laughs> it's, crazy. it's painful, isn't it? It is painful. I mean, sometimes you put that stuff on because a publicist puts it on or somebody puts it on, and then you're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to go back there and edit all that stuff out because it's kind of obscene.
0: But it is a very impressive resume. Come on. I'm, oh, yeah, I'm an
2: impressive person. In my own mind, I'm actually <laughs> unbelievable in my own mind.
0: So. I agree. I agree. So, um, <laughs> happy November. Uh, what are your plans That's for right. Thanksgiving? Let me ask that in advance.
2: Well, okay. So, we our kids are grown, and uh, a couple of them are married now. So, it's not easy to get everyone together uh, on the holiday that you've got in laws who want the same holidays. So, what we always do is we <laughs> we plan it in advance. So, we do Christmas. I mean uh, Thanksgiving, rather uh, about a week probably before Thanksgiving, Okay. we always do it on the Saturday that is the USC UCLA game. Nice. <laughs> so so two of us went to US UCLA and one of us went to USC. So there's a rivalry in the family anyway. So yeah. that's always about a week before Thanksgiving. So that's the day that we all get together and eat Thanksgiving food. It's just not Thanksgiving day.
1: Yeah,
0: it sounds like a great uh, great tradition. I like it a lot.
2: Yeah, it's been fun. and We all have to wear our, our our gear, you know. Yeah. So, so on and, the, hang, uh, and hang the the house divided flag and all that stuff.
0: <laughs> so. so on the real Thanksgiving day, do you eat more, more turkey?
2: Yeah, you know, it's been great because it's just Susie and I, and we get to I mean, sometimes we'll have Thai food.
0: Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> we'll do
2: something other than, than uh, Thanksgiving food, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been good.
0: Well, I always recommend people always go to coldcasechristianity.com, and they can check out all the uh, recent videos and blogs and things you've done, and it's a great resource. I go there often, as you know. And out of that, uh, one of my more recent visits, I saw a couple of things I'd love to talk to you about, All right, yeah. if you don't mind. Let's uh, do it. I know we've got time together. So yeah. uh, let's start with um, the timing of, of Jesus. You know, why, you know, why did Jesus come when he did?
2: Well, that's a good question. And you see this in Scripture, right? Paul talks about Jesus coming in the fullness of time. And so you can get kind of just a straight biblical answer, but there's still some some questions as to what that really means. Yes, I mean, certainly we can say it's part of God's timing, but is there like – and we could say that about almost anything, right? Like this conversation is, right. is probably part of God's timing, right? So, so you could say that, but what is it, like, what do we even mean when we say that it's in the fullness of time? What does that expression even mean? Well, one of the things I, I, I noticed, and, and I, I I'm gonna, it, it surprised me, um, the, the detail to which this is true. But if you look at the, the history that leads up to the appearance of Jesus, you will see that history aligns. Not only that Jesus could arrive at this time and, and meet the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, right, the, the, the prophets who predicted his arrival. Daniel, for example, says that the Messiah is going to arrive sometime after the, the decree to um, restore Jerusalem and sometime before the destruction of the temple, which, you know, occurs in around 70 AD. So you've got a window. Of several hundred years there, that we would say that's a period of time that, you know, it's going to happen sometime in there. And then you have a period of time which is dictated by the culture. Um, it turns out the Roman Empire uh, arises in that region of the world and ends up conquering the known world and, and also providing the infrastructure of roads, postal services in a 200 year period of peace called the Pax Romana. And Jesus happens to arrive during that 200-year period of peace in which the infrastructure is now – money is no longer being spent on war. It's being spent now on infrastructure preparing for the next war. And a lot of that means they're building roads, roads that they can move their armies on, and, and they're going to go through things. They don't want to make tight turns. So now you see bridges being built at a rate that never seen before. You see tunnels being built at a rate never been seen before. We're not going around that mountain. We're not going around that. We're going to go over it and through it. Well, those are the same roads. You know that expression, all roads lead to Rome. Well those roads did lead to Rome and Mm -hmm. ultimately led even connected to the to the Silk the Silk Road, which is going all the way to, to China. So you have now an infrastructure in place that if someone does arrive during that period of time You would be able to easily communicate about that someone. Those are the roads that Paul took that weren't even available 200 years earlier that now are available to someone like Paul who wants to share the message. Now, again, another window of opportunity. You can overlay the Pax Romana on that prophecy of Daniel, and you'll get a a smaller window in which both things are happening at the same time. And then if you even look at all of the mythologies that precede Jesus from people who are thinking about God – and they've got reasonable expectations of God, but they express them in any number of different ways. Well, it turns out Jesus comes and he embodies their imagination. He embodies the expectations of ancient and modern people uh, when they think of, when we think about God. You know, that God would be above the nature that he creates. He'd be above the material world. He'd be beyond the material world. He'd be outside of space, time, and matter. He would probably appear in a miraculous way. He'd probably be able to defeat death. These are expectations we have of God. That are expressed in the mythologies of the ancients. And those people who were worshipping those mythologies didn't worship them forever. Like, for example, Osiris, eventually people stopped worshipping Osiris. If you wanted to come at the time in which the most number of worshipping ancients were worshipping their expected mythologies – much of which resemble each other and even resemble the story of Jesus. And you wanted to come in and embody each and every one of their expectations in the most robust way possible. You'd have to arrive when the most people are still worshiping their myths. It turns out those three opportunities, when they're overlapped, give you a window of opportunity between about 29 B.C. and about 70 A.D. And Jesus, in those 99 to 100-year period of time, he falls right in the middle of that. And that's not something you find by working Jesus backwards. You find that before you even know about Jesus. You could actually lock in that window of opportunity, and then you just have to see who arrives. There's a reason why the first century is called the first century, even though it isn't the first century that humans recorded history or that we lived. But we call it the first century for a reason, because there's this window of opportunity. Jesus arrives in the middle of it, and that window provides us with the opportunity to spread the word, to spread the the truth about Jesus across the world in a way that was not previously available. And so that's why I think that Jesus arrives when he arrives in history.
0: That is a fascinating uh, response to the question, Jim. I so appreciate that. And then also, wasn't Greek the most fully developed language uh, at the time?
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I look at this kind of fuse that's burning, you know, this is what person of interest is about, this idea of a fuse that's burning up to the appearance of Jesus. And one aspect, one strand of that fuse is the cultural fuse, right? And that's mm-hmm. the Roman Empire rising. Well, the Roman Empire does a number of things. It's not just that the empire is rising and to provide that period of peace. It's that we actually have other technologies that seem to be paralleling and rising at the same time. So for example, if you arrive too much in the distant past before Jesus arrives, well, you don't have the technology by which you could even write something down and, and travel with it so for example, the first uh, writings we have exist on clay or on stone before the use of papyrus. Well, those writings won't travel uh, they'll break up they are too heavy to, to carry. Also you have the most ancient uh, alphabets are usually some form of pictograph or cuneiform these are these are, are they lack the, the, the number of, of symbols necessary to communicate complex ideas. If you only had pictographs. Um, you you'd have a hard time, for example, writing out the narrative of the Sermon on the Mount with all the detail that's in there, all the nuance that's in there. In fact, even the Persian alphabet, even when you get all the way – until you get to the Etruscan alphabet, which arises on the Italian peninsula and eventually becomes the alphabet that's used by the Roman Empire, and then it's spread all over the known world. Well, it's in that alphabet that you have enough vowels, you have enough consonants where you can actually make complex statements in a way that uh, is – it's much richer than other prior alphabets. So it's not just the the that the, the Roman Empire is rising, it's that you have now technology with wheels. You have roads you didn't have. You have a postal system you didn't have. You have language. The Greek spoken language has now become the language of the empire, and it's spoken all over the place. You have, you have uh, an alphabet that, that the story can be written and, 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 and travel all over the empire and can be read and understood with enough complexity. All of these things are happening at the same time until finally you have that window in which something, is about, something new is about to happen. And when it does happen, it'll have legs. And that's exactly what happens in the first century.
0: Fascinating. Jim, let me take a short break. I'm talking to J. Warner Wallace. His latest book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. If you want to learn more about that book, you can go to personofinterestbook.com. Again, personofinterestbook.com. After a short break, I'll be right back with Jim.
1: Listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance.
0: Welcome back to the show. I want to say in November, I just want to re- remind all listeners that we're making a, uh, a book available from our own Susie Larson this month. Uh, it's called Prepare Him Room, and it's a daily Advent devotional. We just want you to be aware of that. We're going to give away two devotional bundles, which includes two copies of Prepare Him Room and two sets of these uh, really nice quote graphic cards, one for you and for a friend. So all you have to do to uh, Get registered in the drawing is go to MyFaithRadio.com. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Now, having said that, I encourage you also to go buy Jim Wallace's book, uh, Person of Interest. It is uh, his newest book, and it's uh, why Jesus still matters in a world that rejects the Bible. I'm always enthusiastic about Jim and his work, and you can learn more about that book at PersonOfInterestBook.com, PersonOfInterestBook.com. You can also go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim and everything he does, his writing and his podcasts. They're all there. They're all excellent. All right, Jim, um, I would love to talk about the f- salvation. Is salvation really a free gift?
2: Yeah, isn't that something that we... I and mean, if you've done enough work with other groups, like if you have Mormons in your family or somebody who... Uh, maybe thinks that Christianity is um, is it's kind of legalistic about it in terms of, you know, that we must do certain things in order to be saved in addition to what God does for us. I mean, that's where I think this question becomes important. Um, I've got a lot of Mormons in my family, and they would say that they are also Christians. At least that was what they would say today. Now, I would say 30 years ago, you probably wouldn't find many Mormons saying that. But But really, I think it was after... Mitt Romney's first run at president, that, that the idea became, no, no, we're just another denomination of Mormonism. I mean, of Christianity, rather. And so so they wanted to be seen this way. And then uh, my discussions with the Mormons would change slightly. And we would talk about, well, what do we mean? Well, how are you saved? And this idea that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself or to contribute to your salvation, I think is is kind of given away by the word gift um, and if you think about what the, how we define that word, and I've looked at it in a number of different sources for the word gift, it's usually defined as something that is given to you freely. It's bestowed freely upon you. It's something that is made uh, given to you voluntarily without you being able to pay for it. Like you can't compensate. You, if, if, some, if you're paying for a gift, it's no longer a gift. It's now something you purchased. So it's really anything, I would say, quote-unquote, anything given, anything voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation that's what a gift is and why that becomes important i think is because one of the orthodox claims that we would make as as christians is that that we can't earn that really, it's what Jesus does for us. It's really an unusual approach if you think about it in terms of all the other worldviews that are out there. Every other worldview requires you to do something, to follow some set of rules, to follow some set of principles for for living uh, that that would then somehow bestow upon you the right to go on to the next life or uh, a better, uh, you know, reincarnation. Or it's about your good works. And here comes Christianity with a very different view, and you see it. Because that word gift is used. And then it's amplified usually by description. So if you read Ephesians 2, right, verses 7 to 9, I'll just read it and, and, and you can see what you, what you think of it. And It's that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there you have a pretty clear statement that that salvation is 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 given to you by it's a gift, and gifts can't be earned, or they are no longer gifts. They're something else by definition. And so this idea that that I think is important for us to to retain this, and just look for the word gift, and you'll find it, um, you know, described in a number of places. You'll see it in Romans five. Nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who is the figure of him that was to come? Not but not as the offense, so also is the Free gift. There is again the free gift. There, the word gift is being paired with the word free, just to make it like more obvious. Like you don't even need to say free gift; it's almost redundant, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea is that the gift is free. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ. So you'll see in that passage like three more, four more times where the the word uh, gift is used, and then coupled with free gift. I mean, how much more clear can this be that your salvation is the free gift? Now, I I have been reading to you from the King James, which a lot of us would say that's the only thing you should read from. And then some of us would say, well, no, there's other translations that would be better. But I only use the King James when talking about this issue because most of the people who need to hear this truth are from our friends and family members who are Mormons. Because those friends and family members are only using the King James. Because that's the version that, that was authorized by the church. It's in their quads if there are missionaries. It's in their Holy Scripture Is the King James Version of the Old and New Testament. So I want to be able to use the very Scripture that they are using in order to communicate to them why this is so critical. Because it turns out that that other verse I read to you in Ephesians really explains why it matters. It's of It's a gift of God, not of works. Why lest any man should boast? And the minute you move toward earning something, you cannot help yourself but look across the table and say, you know, that guy's not doing everything I'm doing. You just cannot help yourself. If you start to think that your salvation is on the basis of works, you automatically end up separating yourself from those you don't think work as hard and and then you become prideful and you become like that like the, the, the you know the pharisee who says boy hey, that dude's a sinner oh, thank you god i'm not a sinner and that's the problem is that it, it, it that that the only three things that will separate you from god faster than any other three things are the three things we talk about all the time in murders they're also in 1 john 2 and that is going to be sex money and power mm-hmm. and that third category power that's really the pride of life that john talks about there and that pride is is dangerous. And what happens when you think you are earning something is you be – like we want – like how many times have you worked for a job and you feel like I'm not being paid as much as that guy? My coworker makes more money. He doesn't even work as hard as I do. That's the natural inclination of our fallen hearts is that we look across the table and we say, I'm worth more than that guy because I should be paid more than that guy. I work harder than that guy. You'll do the same thing when it comes to salvation. Trust me. hmm so it's a matter of us trying to move away from that view of of uh, of uh, salvation
0: I was listening to one of your podcasts recently and I jotted this line down that you said we have to love the people that hold bad ideas
2: yeah no no doubt I man it's then and I think that, but young people are I'm afraid that young people don't don't understand the difference because we've been sold this bill of goods by culture that says hey if we are going to be considered tolerant. Uh, we're going to have to, to treat everyone's ideas as though they have the same value. I hold this view, and my view is equally as valuable as it's equally as uh, meritorious or, um, you know, it's equally as valuable. It's, it's as right as, as true as your view is. And if you can't agree that my view has the exact same value as your view, well, then you're being intolerant. And that's the definition I think our young people are being sold. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's ridiculous. We have to agree in order to tolerate you. Look, tolerance is the stuff you use with people you don't agree with. (laughs) I mean by definition, you need one thing before you can even begin to to use tolerance or even a, a tolerance to emerge, and that is you have to have a disagreement. If you're saying now that no, 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 tolerance means you have no disagreements, well, then you can't have tolerance. You've just destroyed it by definition. But our young people are being sold that, right? Like, well, you better agree with me. You better think that this view of sexuality, this view of identity, this view of everything, I can redefine words. And you have to uh, agree that my redefinition has the exact same truth value as your old definition. Really? That's tolerance now? By the way, if I came to that person and I said, okay, here's my view. My view is that there are some things that are good, some things that are bad. Not everything's of equal value. Can you accept my view? Well, no. Because your view is the opposite. You have to reject my view in order to accept your view. But your view says you have to accept all views, so how can you reject my view? (laughs) See, there's the problem. It's self-refuting by nature. But I think our young people have to know that, look, it's okay to hate bad ideas. Because God hates bad ideas, but God hates evil. Mm -hmm. And it's okay for you to hate. You're just not allowed to hate the people who hold bad ideas. We're supposed to love those people. But there's going to be lots of bad ideas I hope you hate. Right. Because God hates him, too.
0: Right. just had a question from a listener. Would a 15-year-old boy be interested in this book that has no interest in church or Jesus?
2: Well, I'm always drawing—I'm always writing books for 15-year-old kids just like that, because that's where I think the battle is, the battle right now— so I, I think my books are all accessible by adults, but you'll see that there's 400 illustrations in this book. My goal with the publisher as I said, hey, you know, I, I don't want a single page. If there isn't a list of some sort that makes the page wonky because there's a list there instead of text, I want there to be a graphic element on every single page. So if you just kind of open the book randomly, you'll see that every page has got some kind of illustration. That's because I want it to read quickly. I think that young people uh, sometimes will read from from illustration to illustration.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's kind of like a graphic novel in some ways. <laughs> and I also want to tell a cop story. I'm going to tell a, a story of a murder involving, you know, uh, Tammy Hayes, and then I'm going to show you how that application applies to the case for Christianity. So I'm thinking about, you know, is this accessible by the most important generation in the church? And here's the secret it's not boomers. We're not the most important generation in the church. And it's not even Gen X or millennials. It's Gen Z. Mm. The future of Christianity sits in the laps of Gen Z. We have to make a decision. Like, I I, I know, I, I care more about my kids than I care about myself. And I think most of us who have kids would always say that. Yeah. Do we care more about the kids in the church than we care about ourselves? That's a great point. So I'm trying to write the books for for that are accessible by by young people.
0: Yeah. We'll be right back with Jay Warner Wallace. Um, you can go to coldcasechristianity.com to uh, get to his website. And also, if you want to learn more about his book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible, you can go to personofinterestbook.com. That's personofinterestbook.com. Be right back
1: you are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold faith, hope, and clarity in a special it's repeat performance Jump in your car yeah. what's for dinner yeah. it's the afternoon show
0: I'm back with Jay Warner Wallace. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com or go to personofinterestbook.com. And that's his newest book, Person of Interest: Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And I'm also happy to report that if you go to that website, you can download a chapter to look at. And you can see how amazing it is and the great illustrations and I think uh, Jim, that was a wonderful answer you gave regarding who this book uh, will appeal to and I Couldn't agree more with all the illustrations. It is a page-turner.
2: Well, and a lot of it is just really trying to – we're translators, right? I mean that's what you're doing too. You've had a lot of guests on your show who are talking about difficult topics, and I've always listened to you kind of figure out a way to make those accessible. And I've I've, I've even heard a couple of times where you've had someone on, and they'll say something, and then you'll kind of echo it, repeat it. But you 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 now make it. Uh, you're doing kind of what I do in in jury trials, or what, we, what prosecutors do in jury trials, where where they're trying to the expert says something on the on the stand, and they'll say, uh, "Can you try?" They'll even just ask. Can you say that again in a way that the jury would understand? You know, or, or they're trying to be funny about it. But what we're trying to do is to help t- take difficult concepts – sometimes they're scientific, sometimes they're philosophical – and then we're trying to, to, to translate them in a way right, to give new language to these things so that people can – not that people are stupid because they're not. But what happens is we get so geeked out about our little niche of interest. So, so I was with, with Susie watching. Susie's favorite season of the year is football season. Okay, and although she loves football, we this watch. This is your it. wife, Susie. Oh yeah, because she's people like, will
0: hear Susie on this station. Think. Yeah, of Susie that's you Think of
2: Susie Larson. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, maybe Susie feels. Susie Larson feels the same <laughs> way. I don't know. I'll ask her. But but our wife Susie is just you know we will watch a lot of football and and she loves just the athleticism of it but but she's not like going to know all the language and she's not interested in that. She's not interested in some of the concepts about pulling guards, you know, and how guards pull for a run play, like that doesn't really interest her. And so I'll, I'll sometimes talk about it, but but she'll or she'll ask, "What does that mean? What do you just What does he mean when he says that?" I'm the same way with stuff that she likes, you know, that she talk, that listens to podcasts that I don't. I have to ask her. So so we're kind of translating for each other because mm-hmm. we happen to be geeked out on this little niche thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing here too. We, we we probably you you know talking to a lot of authors, you end know, kind of like you start to develop in a sense of what they mean when they and you can forget very easily that your audience may have no idea what that person just mm-hmm. said, right? I, I find the same thing. I've got to really like stop and think. Okay, did I say that in a way that's even comprehensible? So, so I think that's what we're doing here is we're translating for people who maybe aren't as far along, uh, they aren't as geeked out as we are.
0: Yeah. So in other words, Susie likes football, but she doesn't really care. To learn about the nickel D,
2: exactly. And like you know, what's, what's a two safety? You know, drop <laughs> but does she really you know, care about that? Why does that matter? And right. part of the game, you know, she just loves it when she sees a great catch, and she's like, "Wow, that was athletic." You know, and yeah. I was like, "Did you see that?" You know, she's but she's not interested. In, well, why was that guy so dang open? <laughs> okay, you know, <laughs> what's the blown yeah. coverage that allowed that to happen? You know, that's not her, her interest. So, yeah. so Jim, uh,
0: you teach at the Cove once in a while, don't you?
2: Oh, yeah, I was just there last, was it last month, a week ago, last Monday. It was, uh, I get to go for, most of the time, I'm asked to go when it comes to law enforcement retreats, and so um, that's what I've been doing most recently.
0: Yeah, we've done a, uh, we did a lovely promotion in October. We did Pastor Appreciation Month, and we said we want to celebrate and honor pastors, and we suggested people nominate their pastor, and we had 450 people nominate their pastor, and the, uh, the 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 winner is going to get uh, all expense paid weekend to the Cove.
2: They at- will not forget it. They will love it. That's yeah. just it's just go on the Cove's uh, Instagram account this week. The, the last post they posted was maybe yesterday. Uh, you got to see it. I mean, right now leaves are changing in North Carolina, and if you look at uh, at the leaves around the Cove area, that Boone Asheville kind of in that region, you'll just go, "Oh my gosh." Like get there now, <laughs> but no matter when you go, yeah. it's just this beautiful area. It's it's this kind of this wooded uh, rolling hills. Uh, when you're there, you know, you have to like drive very slowly to get from the gate nice. to the actual lodge because there's going to be so many deer that are going to be walking on the road right in front of you. I mean, it's just one of those places you won't forget.
0: That's so. lovely. So they're going to – the, the winner is going to be announced tomorrow – in the five o'clock hour. So I'm well, just trying awesome. to throw that out as a small hint yep. to have people uh, make sure they're listening tomorrow during the five yep. o'clock hour. We will announce the winner. So that's going to be exciting to do that. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. So um, I'd also love to chat a little bit, you know, cause we talk about how important it is to connect with people to, to uh, you know, love the unlovable, but we also have to talk in a way that doesn't confuse them. And I, I think that we get caught up with a lot of Christian cliches, And I I think it confuses people. And I know you don't want to do that in your communication style.
2: No, as a matter of fact, I think cops can be really bad about this themselves. You know, it's, um, we have our own language too. And you'll see when a cop gets on the stand and and they're asked to, um, to talk about what happened, you know, so they'll say, well, yes, you know, I upon arrival, I (laughs) talking (laughs) like they're writing a police report, you know, you have to kind of say to them, Hey, you know what, um, relax a little bit you sound like you're writing a report and and you don't want to seem like you're so detached um, that you can't you can't um, connect with people and there's a language there's a language in law enforcement I get it there's a language in football we talk about certain kinds of coverages right? right pulling guards this is a language and if you can't translate the language then suddenly you're you're losing people that's true for us too I mean I think we, we, we get and I don't, I'm not against it I like the idea that a certain level of precision can be arrived at within any system of thought by using language, which has been developed for that system of thought. So I'm okay with it. But if people who are outside the system of thought are going, what in the world are they talking about? And and, and there's even little things, like I'm going to give you a couple of expressions that I think that people don't realize. Have you ever heard someone say something like, God has put you on my heart? Oh, yeah. Or God has put, put you on my heart. Mm-hmm. Or even the expression God told me, and I wrote an article for Fox News one time on this because somebody was m- mocking how Christians could hear from God. And, uh, but I do think the world around us wants to know what you mean by that. Like if, you, if you're saying God told you to do something, or God gave me this message to give you, and that's been said to me a number of times at speaking events where someone will walk up. And and I would have told you that as a new Christian or as somebody who was not yet a Christian, I'm like, Really? Like, you know, what is that are you telling me that are you sure that you God spoke to you? I mean, did he speak to you audibly? Like you heard a voice from heaven you know it's like a Morgan Freeman voice came down from heaven and, 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 and said something to you? Is that what you're saying when you when you say that, that expression? Um and I think that some people actually would say, Well yes, I actually heard God's voice, which is fine. But a lot of people will say that when they don't actually mean that. They, they mean that um, you know something else. they mean either that number one, um, well, look, can you just like translate it for us so we can just I think sometimes people both they really mean is, you know, um, I've been thinking about you a lot lately, and, and when you come to mind, uh, sometimes it's when I'm praying and talking to God and, mm. uh, and you come to mind. And that to me, may be what you mean, and it's a little clearer. It's a little more specific, and it's not as confusing for people. That's a very simple one. But even like expressions we talk about, to be like to be born again. Okay, what, what does that mean to be born again? I think some people will take that expression and identify it with even a political party or something. And what we really mean is something a little bit different. When we say you know, you must be born again, or um, I would always ask, well, okay, so are are Christ- are all Christians by definition born again? Uh, Or, or is there something uh, different? I mean, why you do you? If that's the case, if all Christians are born again, it's like born again. What is it? Is there a difference between born again Christians and other Christians? I mean, some people, if you're not born again Christians, you're not really a Christian. If you are really a Christian, why are you adding that adjective? Right? So, are the born again Christians like the hardcore Christians? Are they like the like the political, uh, you know, activist kind of Christians? Like, what do you mean by born again? Believe it or not, most people who are not Christians don't know what to make of that word. Or to make of that expression, they're not is not as clear to them as it is to us. So I sometimes will just change it a little bit, you know, and I'll say, "Hey, um, what I really mean is I want you to reconsider what it is you believe, reconsider your own sin, and begin a new life as you accept Jesus as Savior. A new life that will feel like, you know, that it's exactly what it is—a new life, uh, submitting to Jesus instead of to your own desire." Look, I think we just have to take time. To to even take the words that like well a word like repentance, that's a word that I get, I know, but I think a lot of my friends look at that and say, well, "Boy, it's like, like a Catholic kind of a thing, right?" I mm-hmm. mean, you know, like like penance, like penitence, uh, repentance, like well, the, these words all seem like they sound alike, right? But of course, what we mean. Is that that, that if there is a God who's all-powerful, he has the ability to be morally perfect. And the only way that imperfect creatures like you and me can be united to that perfect God is somehow to accept the pardon that he's offering for our imperfect We have to stop and change our mind about where we're going, who we think we are, and accept what he has done for us. In other words, we're going to take some time to parse out what it is uh, we really mean by these words we've been using as if everyone already understands what we mean when they probably don't,:
0: I would imagine non-believers, when they hear certain words, their brain puts those words in some category, and they think, "Oh, he's one of those guys." and yeah, I it, think you're right. yeah, we, it might put us at a disadvantage right off the, off the top. Because what you don't want to do is come across as that holier-than-thou guy or that self-righteous guy who's using that yeah. kind of language.
2: Yeah, oh, the church lady from Saturday Night Live, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean I, honestly, there's, and I, and I think it's, we can sometimes like go, well, come on, we have to retain some of this language. How, how, how difficult it is for people to learn the word repentance, right? I mean, that's not a word that should be hard to, to learn. But I think what happens is, is that it's not just that they don't understand the word, it's that it has some kind of connotation that came from their own experience, which may not be the connotation you have for it. That's all I'm saying, right? So uh, I've heard exp- – like the word – look, I don't want to move away from this word. I think this word is important. Sin is an important word. I agree. But people have a view of sin that um, that I think we have to parse out for them, right? Because they have a tendency I, – I would have said that when you use the word sin, you're talking about a notion that automatically I as an atheist would have rejected, because it already sounds like it's too entrenched theologically. And because I rejected all theological concepts, I would have rejected the idea of. But there's an important truth about sin that I want people to get, even if they are rejecting the Word, right? So I want them to understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sin. It's, it's that I'm really talking about uh, the imperfection, the, the kind of more, like if there is a God, who is all-powerful, well, then he has the ability to eliminate his own moral imperfection. That means we're not worshiping a good God. We're worshiping a moral, morally perfect God. And there's the rub, right, that we are not. I mean, I had a partner for years, Bill, who used to say, hey, we're the good guys. And and, if, and there, we, we take bad guys to jail. And if there's a good God and a good heaven, we're going to be in it because, you know what, we're good guys. And I'm like, really? I mean, I wish I. wish okay, I wish God was only good. But the problem is that if he's all-powerful, he has the power to eliminate uh, imperfections, including moral imperfections. And now I'm not worshiping a good God. I'm worshiping the morally perfect God. Mm -hmm. And have you ever had a morally perfect day? I've never had a morally perfect day. There's the problem. See, now now we are completely in a different category. And I think we have to kind of help people to see that what we're talking about is that a God of this nature – is so outrageously beautiful because he is morally perfect. And that's the thing that we're trying to get in the presence of. That's the being that we're trying to get in the presence of. And there's no way you're going to get there having a good day. I've had good days, but Mm -hmm. never a morally perfect day.
0: So as a former atheist, if someone is going to get your attention and, and talk about sin to you in a way that you don't instantly reject, what would they say?
2: Well, I would just talk about our imperfections. Do you, do you ever do things you regret later? Yes. And if there is a God who is perfect, do you think he ever has similar regrets? I don't think so, right? So, so here's what we're trying – it's an oil and water problem, is that you, if you really are interested in God, then you know you cannot be in front of a morally perfect God in your morally imperfect state. Something has to change. And and, and do you think you could ever like work yourself toward perfection? There are people who think that's possible. I know people who think that when you get saved that you can eventually work towards some type of moral perfection. It's called perfectionism. I don't I don't I don't think it's possible, but some people do. But do you honestly think practically, like if you're like in your sixties, I'm now sixty. At 60, do you think you've had it in, getting any closer? I don't feel <laughs> like I am. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm actually about as far away as I've probably ever been. Mm-hmm. Why is that struggle that, that Paul talks about? I don't do the things I know I should do. I, I fail to do the things I, I ought to do, and I do the things I shouldn't do. I mean this is like driving me nuts, and I'm 60. Come on. I mean I, I can't count on my own perfection. I'm going to have to adopt somebody else's perfection. I, I'm, I'm In other words, I could be – uh, I, uh, practically imperfect, yet positionally perfect. There's mm, a difference. I'm is. not going to be practically perfect. I can never, I can never make that mark. But I could be seen as perfect positionally mm-hmm. if I took on somebody else's identity. Yeah, that's a great.
0: And distinction. that's what we're
2: doing in Christ, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're not going to be practically perfect. We're going to be positionally perfect.
0: Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Let me take a short break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Um, Always go to coldcasechristianity.com. That's where you can learn about Jim and his books and his podcasts and his blog. We'll take a short break and be right back.
1: listening to an encore presentation of afternoons with bill arnold faith hope and clarity in a special repeat performance
0: my guest is j warner wallace his new book is called person of interest why jesus still matters in a world that rejects the bible You can go learn about that book at personofinterestbook.com. You can download a sample chapter, and then after that, you'll want to get it. I'm pretty sure it's um, one that you're going to want to check out. So personofinterestbook.com. And you can also go to coldcasechristianity.com. That's uh, Jim's website. So, uh, Jim, I don't know if I'm going to talk to you again before Thanksgiving, but let's chat a little bit about... uh, Thanksgiving it's it's a you say it's a distinctly Christian holiday
2: yeah I mean think about it just philosophically uh, forget about you know uh, the history because that's that's another whole issue right? the history of Thanksgiving and how but 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 just think about the philosophy of giving thanks right like like what is it are how far do we extend that right like what how what is the nature of like? We're just thankful to what your parents that they put on this nice meal. That's what that, I think you should be thankful to your parents for putting mm-hmm. on a, nice a nice meal. But it, there's a sense in which the the founding fathers and the people who uh, first celebrated Thanksgiving knew that it was more than that, right? Like if you were just to step back and say, well, I, I'm thankful to my parents, but then I'm thankful to my grandparents for having my parents, and you can keep on going backward in time as to what <laughs> you're thankful for, and eventually you end up at the foot of the, at the foot of, of feet of God. You know, what? who is it who ultimately is the, the one necessary being upon which every other being is contingent? Well, the necessary being, of course, is God. So what is the one necessary place we could place our gratitude? It would be at that thing that starts all of it. You're really thinking the first domino in this series of dominoes that got you to whatever you're thankful for today. So, in the end, even philosophically, I think you would you would want to to, to, to know who it is we ultimately um, owe our thanks to and I think that you know Edward Winslow uh, who's a pilgrim, um, he was describing some of the Thanksgiving celebrations that were going on uh, very very early in the in the, the founding of this this the, the exploration of this continent and he's talking about um, either book of Acts, the biblical themes themes and psalms. Um, and he had these kinds of things in mind when he was talking about the first, um, the first Thanksgivings. And I'll tell you that if you read that, it, it really—imagine, I guess what I'm trying to say is, imagine if you had a leader right now in your in your country, or a leader in your community, um, who spoke in the kind of God-drenched language of the first people who celebrated. It was clear that Thanksgiving, although for whatever – how it first began, it was clearly uh, grounded in this Christian notion of God and giving thanks to the Christian God. So you might say, well, that's just here in America. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating Thanksgiving in America coming up here in a couple of weeks. And it turns out that the earliest celebrations are all – and so you can go back and read these. But what's really interesting is that you'll see a lot of Christian theology – That is, even Washington, right, when he talks about Thanksgiving, I'll just read you one paragraph from his proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. And I keep that in mind. That first proclamation was not just a day of public thanksgiving. It was connected to prayer. Washington says, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts that the many and signal favors of Almighty God especially by affording them an opportunity, people, an opportunity, peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. So what Washington says basically is, I want to establish, and so does Congress. Could you imagine, by the way, in today's age, actually speaking about God in this public way, that not only does the president but the House of Congress want to establish a day of public thanksgiving and prayer? Hmm. And that thanksgiving and prayer is not just for all the stuff that God's given you. But also that he has given you a form of government that secures your safety and happiness. So Thanksgiving from the very beginning, it seems to me, as public kind of uh, policy, was um, a Christian opportunity to thank God for what God has done for us. And you'll see that it is echoed. The statements in Washington's statement, for example, are echoed in Hebrews 13, in Psalm 145, Psalm 22. He either alludes or quotes from different passages of Scripture. And you'll see that even throughout that you'll see it again, for example, when Lincoln makes his proclamation. He's going to refer in some ways to Ephesians 2. He's going to refer to Psalm 100? I mean, to to make public proclamations that are so connected to Christian scriptures and Jewish scriptures, it's kind of hard to argue that these are just deists who are just kind of tossing out a general view of God, but nothing specific to the Christian God. Well, it turns out that that you'd have to really ignore the embedded, alluded verses that these folks uh, refer to when they're doing their public proclamations. And so in the end, you're, you're kind of like stuck. Either You just – and I just don't think we're at a place anymore in our country. You tell me if I'm wrong. You, you're talking to a lot more people than I am. But I just don't know that we are comfortable anymore, our leaders are comfortable anymore even talking about our rich Christian tradition, uh, even our rich theistic tradition. I, I wonder how much longer it will be before, before we won't have any statement. Like we'll be thinking, I guess, that the government gave us these things rather than the God – who gave us the government. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it's shifting as you, you see that now it'll be a day of thanksgiving to the leaders who have allowed us to have all these great things rather than to the God who gave us the system by which we raise up leaders. And that's where I think that the shift is occurring.
0: Mm-hmm. Got a couple of notes coming in, Jim. I uh, got a nice note from Dave. He said, uh, thanks for having Jay Warner Wallace on again. My brother-in-law and I are currently going through his new book, and we love it. We're now on chapter two, which he just spoke about. Please thank him for me.
2: Oh, that's so awesome. That's it's, right. it's, it's, I'm grateful, that Bill, also that you even would, would have me on to talk about those kinds of things. I and mean, no one writes a book they want no one to read. But, <laughs> but I'll, right. I'll tell you that I really, what my hope is that we don't allow books or radio shows to elevate us personally Right but that we use these things to elevate the god who has given us this opportunity. It's kind of like this talk about thanksgiving. Like who are we giving thanks to. Yeah. You know, I'm not just thankful to you and you're not just thankful to your to your bosses at the radio uh, at the station. You're you're actually thankful to the god who gave you the opportunity and the freedom right now to be able to speak freely about him. And that's where we, think, we have to get to stay. Right? So I'm always like hesitant when someone says, "Oh, I love your book." Well, I'm glad you love the book. I I'm I'm always like, Ugh, "I want I don't want you to think I wrote that book so that you can tell me you love the book. Right. right. I wrote the book because I just am so geeked out (laughs) about what I discovered about Jesus that I just have to share it with you.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And, um, you know, I'll I'll tell you a secret. When I first wrote my first book, I asked the publisher. I said, if you can show me that you will spend every dime on marketing the book, you can keep all my royalties because I'm not in it for the money. I already have a pension. I just want the message out there. So you just show me that you're advertising the book; you keep all the money. Wow. And they wrote back to me, said, so "That's pretty noble, but you know we don't have a marketing agency anymore. Things have changed since Amazon, and there's just no way to spend that. This is all even before, kind of in between, uh, bookstores and social media marketing. Right? <laughs> they weren't quite sure how to spend the money. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. That 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 really what it comes down to now is that uh, we're in a place in our culture." We're like Thanksgiving. Things are changing, right? We're not even allowed to—certain books probably won't be on certain platforms to sell. At some point, we may lose the freedom we have to even talk freely about the gospel. So while we can do it, we need to do it all the time. Yeah, that's wonderful.
0: Thank you, Jim, for spending this time with me and my listeners. It's really been uh, great being with you once again.
2: I appreciate you so much, and let's do it again soon. All right, thanks. Okay.
0: Yep. Jay Bye. Warner Wallace has been my guest for the full hour. If you missed any of this, I really encourage you to go to the podcast at myfaithradio.com. You can uh, go to the Afternoon with Bill show page and you can check it out. His book, once again, is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week.